Welcome to Connection Church's podcast. This week, Brandon Williams concludes the six-part series, 180, Turn Your Life Around. In this message, Brandon explains that in order for transformation to take place, we can't do it alone. If we want to function the way God intended us to function, we have to be part of the body of Christ. What excuse are you making for not playing your part in the kingdom? All right. Well, that wraps up our saga with our old friend who's been at the gym trying to get himself in shape, working hard, trying to get there. And, uh, and we're, but we're finishing up our 180 fitness series today. And so I'm excited about this. It's going to be a good time. And, and we started thinking about this series because um, 180 Fitness is, is the local gym here. And the, the, the slogan is turn your life around. And we were thinking about how spiritually that's what we need to do. We need to begin to turn our life around. That's what Jesus came to do is allow us to turn our life around and begin living for God. And so we begin looking at that. And specifically, if you, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter two is where we're going to be. And specifically looking at the life of Nehemiah, um, this Jewish man who had been taken captive um, and who was basically serving in, in, in the kingdom as a wine tester, as, as a cupbearer. He was basically the guy who would sip the king's wine, and if it didn't kill him, they would give it to the king. Um, it, not a lot of value placed on his life, right? That's what we've been talking about is, is not a lot of value placed on his life. If he killed over, they'd get somebody else. Anybody that could sip the wine was, was good enough to do this job. And so they, they, that's where Nehemiah was. But the awesome thing about Nehemiah is he ends up becoming the governor of Judah. He heard of how the, the Jews were being treated um, and how Jerusalem was in ruins. And, and it was a burden that was on his heart that he would go back and begin to rebuild the ancient city, begin to do a work um, that only God could do. And today we're going to wrap this up by looking at the fact that we can't um, do what God's called us to do alone. Just like our, our guy here at 180 Fitness couldn't do it alone. He had to have some help, and uh, he, I think he would have absolutely died because I know that actor, and there's no way he could have lifted that much weight. He would have definitely died under the weight of that bench, but somebody was there to help him, and I guarantee you every one of us have, have been in a situation in our life where we had to have somebody come to our rescue, where we had to have somebody come and help us along in life, and, and, and I hope that we'll begin to see more clearly that, that Jesus did that for us. He came to our rescue. He came to our aid, and also to see that now he's called each of us to be a part of, of helping um, the other. So I want to read to you real quick. It's out of Nehemiah 2. I'm going to read to you 11 through 20. And this is what it says. This is Nehemiah speaking. He said, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except one, the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool. But there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet, I, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and the gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be a disgrace." I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat and the Horonite 
And Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, this awesome task you've called us to as the body of Christ, as the church, God. I pray, Father, that we would begin to own our responsibility in this. I pray that we begin to step into the things you've called us to do, that we'd uh, be locked heart to heart in a way that can only come through the power of the Holy Spirit. And God, that we would begin to be burdened for the lost and the hurting and the needy. And that as, as one man led by the, the headship, the, under the headship of Jesus Christ, we begin to go and move and do the things you've called us to do, that we quit playing religious games and quit playing church and begin to be the hands and feet of Christ. God, I, I pray that you would fill us right now with boldness, that your word would be anointed, and that, God, we would be able to hear the truth today as you speak it to our hearts. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We praise you, God. Have your way here in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll tell you a quick story. In my former life as a roofer, um, if you ever wonder if God can use you, then he's used me some. I'm sure if it was an accident or whatever, he's used me in some way. But so if you wonder, God can use a roofer to do stuff. He can use anybody, right? Come on. There's a bunch of roofers in here today. He can use us. He can use anybody. Um, but in my former life, I was, I was a roofer and, and I worked for a local roofing business. And one of the first jobs that we did was one of the old dorms at Georgia Southern. And it had asbestos shingles on it, and we had to get all this special stuff done to get off the asbestos off of the roof, and, and we had to do all this stuff. We finally got all that off, and it was time to put the felt paper down on the roof. You go by a house or something, you see the black felt paper. Uh, some of the folks working with Kingdom Builders this week will get to know that black felt paper very well as they're trying to nail it down, hitting their fingers, and doing all those good things that teenagers do when they try to put a roof on. And so... I'm there. We get the felt paper on. It was in the middle of the summer because all these renovations had to be done during the summertime because it was when the students were gone. There was nobody in the dorms. They had pretty much cleared it out. And every time we would do one of these jobs in the summer, they always give us a key so that we could get in if we needed to for an emergency. Well, you know, in South Georgia, with the humidity and the heat, what happens a lot of times at night? We get what? Thunderstorms, right? And big thunderstorms. It might rain like four inches here and not rain at Wendy's. Well, here's what happened. It was one night. It was about midnight. I'm laying in bed. The worst part of being a roofer is every time it rains, you're like, great, what's leaking? And so I'm laying in bed and I'm thinking, and I'm like, you know, there was just something in my heart that said, you better go check out the dorm. So I get up in the middle of the night and I take the key and I go and I'm the only one there and I, I go in first floor dry, second floor dry. Of course it's dry, it's not the top floor. And so I get to the third floor and I open the door and I walk out and it sounds like Niagara Falls. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And so I, I start going and looking and everywhere I went, there was water coming through the ceiling. I mean, there was water and light fixtures. There was water everywhere. And I'm by myself and I'm like, I can't, what am I going to do? And so I had to go and find trash cans. And I found like four 50 gallon trash cans and I was running them up and down the hallway and I take them in and put it under this leak. And then, oh gosh, there's another leak. And I go get another trash can. And it was just, I'm just running around and it was so crazy because I couldn't do it. 
I didn't have the resources. I didn't have the manpower to do what I needed to do. And it was so frustrating. And the worst part was I knew I had to face the university the next morning. Like they're going to kill me. And, you know, and I'm already thinking of excuses. I'm like, I didn't do this. This is their fault. I didn't put that down. They did something wrong. It's not me. Couldn't be me. But I'm already thinking I've got to face them in the morning. And what the, the, the worst thing, I think, of, for it, of it for me was I felt so helpless. I mean, I, I was like, I can't do this. This is, this is beyond me. And so I'm just running around like crazy. But I realized I, I can't do anything. This is out of my hands. Don't you know that Nehemiah had to feel a little bit like that? Can you imagine? Now, he had, never, he had not seen Jerusalem and the ruins that it was in. But can you imagine when he gets there and he sees the devastation, that, that the walls are all down, there's nothing there but ruins? Can you imagine what he must have felt? And he's riding around looking, and he's literally, I believe, counting the cost of what it's going to take to be able to rebuild this city. And I believe that as he's riding, there had to be a sense of, I can't do this by myself. I can't do this alone. We have a lot of folks who come to church here who are in recovery. You can't do recovery alone. You've got to have help. And I know Nehemiah must have felt the same thing. And he had to be nervous as he presented this idea to the officials and the nobles and the people who were going to have to help him rebuild the city. Can you imagine as he begins to cast this vision of this is what we're going to do? But one thing about it, Nehemiah knew two things. He knew, one, that he couldn't do it alone. And he knew, two, that he was called to something bigger than he is, than he was. We need to realize that today, that we can't do what God's called us to do alone. He's called us to do this together. We can't be transformed into the people God called us to be by ourselves. And so this is what we're looking at today, is looking at the fact that Nehemiah could not have accomplished it on his own. It took a realization of some things. And I want to give you a couple of those things today. And this is, this is where we're going. But I want you to see especially that the greatest privilege we have in our life today, right now as we sit here, is one, to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. But two, to be able to help God write his eternal story here on earth. That he's given us the Holy Spirit to be able to bind us together so that we could truly be the body of Christ. Listen, that is the church. The church is not this building. The church is the people, the body of Christ, you and I, so that we could do what God has called us to do. So there's four realizations, revelations, whatever you want to call them, that I want to talk to you about today, and, and we're going to look at this. The first one is this, and I would, I would write these down because I hope you'll take this and look at it later and realize that this is what God's called us to, people. He's not called us to walk week in and week out through the doors of a church, just sit on our rear ends and, and, and not do anything. The purpose of us getting together is to be strengthened and encouraged and equipped to go out and do what God created the church to do. Is everybody good? Everybody feel good? This All right, good. We're going to have a good time this morning. Just tell you, even if you're not, just say it. Say it to yourself. We are going to have a good time this morning, even though he's boring and dry and I'm not getting anything out. I'm, we're going to have a good time this morning. So uh, let's look at the first one. The first thing we've got to realize, we, we have to realize that we've been given a God-sized task. Now that sounds really profound, I know, but it's true. We've been given a God-sized task. This is something that we cannot do on our own. Listen to Nehemiah 6, 15 through 16. It says, so the wall was completed. This is after they've been through all sorts of stuff, all sorts of hell trying to get this wall built. 
So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul. That sounded really funny. Elul, in 52 days, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. See, there were these two guys that constantly gave Nehemiah and the Jews fits. Their name was their names were Tobiah and Sambalot. And this was one of those moments where they just went, oh, crap. I mean, they literally had that moment where it's like, oh, my gosh, what has happened? Because they began to realize that they could not stop the Jews. They began to realize that they could not keep this wall from being built. And once it was completed, it said that there was fear that went through all of their enemies because they realized that God was with them. They realized they had accomplished a task that was bigger than they were. It's something they couldn't do on their own. How many of you sitting here today would say, rather than playing a religious game and trying to just come to church, feel better about ourselves, put a Band-Aid on our conscience, you would like to go to your grave knowing that God had done something through you and through a body of believers that nobody could take credit for because only God could do it. That's what he's called us to, guys. We've got to get this. And, and my common thing today I want to be is, can you see this? Can you see? I can see it in my head so clearly as to how it's going to happen. It's going to happen when every one of us start doing our part. We got a couple of guys in the church that, that one of them uh, was invited by a friend of his. He came to church. He, he came for a couple of weeks, gave his life to Christ because a friend brought him. We got, he went to work for another guy in the church. He goes, they've been trying to get a guy to come to church. And I'm just being very vague with not using names. But they, they tried to get this other guy to come to church. With this guy that just got saved goes to work. Two weeks later, the other guy comes to church. Within two weeks, he gives his life to Christ. You remember the guy who got saved at the off, during the offering a couple of weeks ago? Corey? That was him. That was him. How many times do you see people get saved in an offering? That don't happen. But he gave his life to Jesus. Not because of the word that was preached. Not because it was like, oh. It it, it happened because he came because a friend invited him. Listen, those two guys that got him here, they altered eternity forever. Forever. By getting somebody else here. Listen, God's called us to a God-sized task. This is not something we will do on our own. We need to begin to buckle down and do our part. We'll begin to to do things. Listen, the enemy's not worried about what we can do on our own. The enemy's worried about what we can do when we unite under the headship of Jesus Christ. And we begin to do. He shudders at the thought. And I I pray you'll take notes today and you will go home and you'll meditate on them. You'll you'll think about them. Because I pray, this is my prayer today, that you would begin to see clearly what God has called us to. This is the vision of God. To connect unbelievers to God and believers to each other. Can you imagine the power? There's going to be when we unite around a common cause and begin to do things in the community and God begins to show himself in an awesome and real way. Um, When I was, I guess I was about eight years old, um, I had a good buddy that lived down the road from me. His name was Joseph. And every day after school, we could not get together fast enough to play. I mean, we were always playing, you know, Indians and, and, and we'd hide in the ditch and we'd, we'd, we'd shoot at people. We, we did some things we probably shouldn't have done, um, like throwing those little snapping pops at cars when they came by the ditch. But 
we had a big time, but there was the bad guys in the neighborhood too. And they were a little bit older than us, the kind of the bully guys. And, and I remember one day I was walking home and we'd been talking a little smack back and forth. Well, one of the big guys decided um, he would use me as a punching bag. And so he jumped me on the way home from, from uh, Joseph's house. But I want to tell you, there's good, I beat the mess out of his fist with my face, man. It was unbelievable. I mean, his fist was bloody. And, and, and um, it was my blood and, and literally like beat me, beat me in, in the eyes. And it wasn't as much blood as it was just like my eyes were sh- almost shut. And so I go home, like, I'm screaming, running home. And, 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 and I'll go to my dad's like, what's wrong with you? Like, this guy, he just jumped on me. He just beat me up. And, and he's like, come on. And then I'm almost sorry. Like I went home because my, I'm like, my dad is about to kill somebody. <laughs> because one thing I always saw is if anybody messed with me or my mom, there was going to be a price you know, to, to be paid. It was going to be bad. And so he gets me by the arm and we go walking. And I'll never forget that as we're walking down the street, I look up and this guy, he was so big and bad and like literally almost beat my eyes shut, was looking out his window. And I remember seeing him. And as we walked closer to the house, I remember seeing him looking out the window and he shut the blinds and he, and he, he disappeared. You could tell he was running. And, and, and so we get to the door and my dad knocks on the door. He's like, you Lord, your son. You know, and I don't even remember all the stuff that was said, but I think it went something like this. If he ever touches my son again, I'm going to whip him. And then if you want some too, dad, you can come get yours too. I'm, I'm pretty sure it went something like that. I may be wrong, but I think it was something along those lines. And so it was, it was, but, and, and this guy, he was so big and so bad and thought he was going to whip me when when my dad showed up it was bad news for him man because he was about to get it he knew my fun is over we need to realize the same thing about god we need to realize the same thing about our heavenly father that the enemy can be having a big time in our life he can be running it he can be he can be taking it and he can be making it miserable but when god the father shows up on the scene he has to run He can't stand. He's got to go. We have a God who created everything. He spoke it into existence. What are we waiting on? When he's got our back, what are we waiting on? Because, man, I was ready to talk some more smack then. I'm like, come on, sucker. Come on, sucker. I got my dad in front, you know. But the next day I had black eyes. The teachers are like, how would you get, you know, did you get beat up? Like, no, just, you know, tell them the whole story. But that's our God. That is our God. The enemy has a lot of fun until daddy shows up on the seat. And listen, that's who's got our back. And that's what we need to begin to realize is that that God, Exodus 19, 5 and 6, I read it again this week and it absolutely blew me away. The end of 5 says this, even, this is God talking to us, even though the whole world is mine, I've chosen you to be my nation of priests. Does that not speak to your heart this morning? That even though he has everything else in the world, he has chosen us to be his nation of priests, to do his work, to do the things that he's called us to do, and he's already prepared for us to do. That is our God. We can't take that for granted. We need to realize this is a God-sized task. We can't do it alone. But I hope that you can begin to see this vision that if we'll all begin to do our part, then God will do something absolutely amazing and incredible. I want to um, go to number two now. Number two, you can write this down. You need to realize your importance to the church, or to the body of Christ. One of the problems we have in the church today is simply this. 
Many of us have been told we'd never be anything. Many of us feel like we haven't become anything. And we bought into a lie that God can never use us to make an impact for him, to make an impact on the world. And so we bought into this lie where we, we think there's nothing that we can do. We need to wake up and realize that we are deceived and that God is calling us to be used. God is calling us. He has given you gifts to be used in the kingdom of God. And I want us to begin to do this. I want us to begin to understand a few things. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you've been in church long, you've heard this scripture. No telling how many times. But I want to begin uh, looking at some of the things that God has told us in his word about our gifts and about what he's called us to do and to be. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 20. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to talk about it. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 20. It says, Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagan, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And He gives them to each one just as He determines. Verse 12, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into the body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is made up of many, not, is made up of, blah, blah, blah. The, now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not be not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Listen, this whole thing is basically telling us we need to realize that we are a part of a body, that God has gifted us to do things for the kingdom of God, and we can't ignore that. The very first verse says, now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. Why didn't he want them to be ignorant? Because they needed to do what God had gifted them to do. But so many of us are ignorant about the fact that God has called us to be a part of doing something, not just existing, but doing something for the kingdom. That he has a kingdom purpose for every one of us. Listen to this. Verse 7. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The first thing we need to realize is that in, in the body of Christ, in the body of Christ, if we don't do our part, the entire body is hurt. The good of others. It said that they were given, the gifts were given for the common good. God has given things to you so that you can be a part of his kingdom work. 
It was for the good of the entire body. It's for the good of the people around you. It's for the good of the people you work with. It's for the good of the people right now who are lost as a ball in high weeds and need the hope of Jesus Christ. It's for the good of the people in our community that don't have enough to eat. It's for the good of the people in our community that don't have enough clothes to wear. That's what God's calling us to be. He's given us gifts to use for the building up of his body. The second thing is this, in verse 11. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He gives them to each one just as He determines. Listen, if you aren't walking in your gifting, if you're not doing the things that God gifted you to do, then it begins to be a thing where you are going to miss the purpose for which you were created. God determined to give you certain gifts so that you could do things for Him. If we're not seeking God to find out, God, where am I gifted? God, what do you want me to do? What is it you would have me to do, God? Then we're going to miss the purpose for which we were created. God has a desire for us to do the work of the kingdom. And when we begin to step into that, we'll begin to see an awesome change in our lives. Verse 14 says this, Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. See, so many of us live our lives as though the body were one part. And you know what part that is? That's us. We think that the one part, this is, I am the body. I am the one part. And so I'm going to do what I want to do. But you have to realize that you are a part of the body. You are part, you, you, the body can't function without you. Other people's purposes in life are hindered when you don't do your part. When we can't love on kids because we don't have somebody show up for children's church, that hinders the body of Christ. Would you not agree? When we don't have people to show up and greet first-time guests on Sunday morning, that hinders the body of Christ because they don't feel welcome. Most people make up their mind if they're coming back to a church again within the first seven minutes. Can you imagine if you've never been to church before, walking through the doors of a church? I went to a rotary meeting the other day and felt so out of place. It was crazy. They were standing up to say the Pledge of Allegiance. I was like, whoa, i got to stand up now. Can you imagine if somebody walks in for the first time into a church and they don't know what we're doing and then all of a sudden everybody stands up because we know that when the band gets on the stage, it's time to stand up, right? And then so everybody stands up and they're like, whoa, i got to stand up. And then when, when the song's over, everybody claps. Because certainly we couldn't clap like during the song or you know, other times during church other than when the song is over. So when the song is over, whether we really liked it, whether we're really praising God, we just, we give a little clap, right? And so you just know those things. And so when it's over, we all say amen and everybody says amen. But can you imagine being somebody who's never been to church? And all of a sudden, the people in front of you stand up, they clap, they raise their hands, and you're like, what in the world is going on? So we have to make people feel welcome. But when people don't do their part to do that in the body of Christ, people don't come back. And if they can't hear the word of God preached, then how how are they going to ever come to faith in Jesus? So the body has got to begin to do its body. When we don't do our purpose, other people's purposes are hurt. See, others need you in a small group. Some of you are resisting being in a connect group. Others need you in a small group. They need what you have to offer. You may think you have nothing to offer. You have something to offer people in the body of Christ. Others need you evangelizing at work. Listen, for many of you, they need, your family needs you telling them about the love of Jesus. Man, last night we, um, we had been swimming and, uh, and everything, and then I'd eaten like a whole hog 
Um, and because we had some ribs and they were really, really good. And so I just ate and ate and then there were some left over. So I ate some more and, and, um, and we got home and, and I could tell Susan was kind of stressing out because I knew she had stuff to get ready for this morning. And, and, um, and I'm there and, and, and looking at her and I'm like, man, I can just tell, I could just recognize that, that, that she was stressing. And so she's kind of running around and we're trying to get the kids bathed and in bed. And I'm thinking, man, I need to get in bed. But, but for a moment, and listen, this was, this was huge for me. I hope it got me many brownie points. But I looked at her and I said, you just look like you need a hug. And so I went, you say all if you want to. Um, but so I just went up to her and I just hugged her and, and we hugged her relaxation. Um, you know, where you, cause you get that tense moment. And so, and so we hugged and, and she's tried to pull away and I said, I'm not relaxed yet. Wait a minute. But I just gave her a hug because I could tell, man, she was stressed out. She was, she was just having a difficult time and, and, and it was struggling with it, but she needed me at that moment. It's her husband as, as, as being one flesh with her. And even as a body of part of the body, she needed a hug. So I gave her a hug and you know what? Her entire attitude changed. Her entire attitude changed. It was over a simple hug. What can you do simply to bless other people in your life, in your family, in your workplace, that, that God can use you to bring them to the greater realization of God's love? The last one in this session is this. Listen, verse 15 says this. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. One of the things that is very true is, listen, if you're a Christian, you're a part of the body. The question is, are you being an effective part? Because what happens is if you're not doing your part, then it becomes a greater burden on somebody else, right? The kingdom work has to be done. So if we're not doing our part, it becomes a greater burden. Some of us are like a bad foot that gets drug along. Some of us are like a hand that just doesn't work. So the other hand has to try to take, take up more of the responsibility. And some of us are, are parts that we're not going to talk about right now. But in every church, there are parts that we just don't discuss. But, but the truth of the matter is, we've got to get to a place where every part is functioning. If the body is going to be healthy, if the body, and I just saw some wives elbow their husbands, signifying that they are that other body part, I, that you should not have done that. But we've got to get to a place where we realize that we are important to the body of Jesus Christ, that we are a part of the body. If we are in Christ, we have made Christ our Lord and Savior, then he is calling us to do things that only we can do, that he created us to do. And we need to step into our purposes and begin to do those things. Number three is this. If you have, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Isaiah 66, 2, 3, 4. Number three, realize that the local church is hemorrhaging, but it's still God's plan for renewing the world. And I believe that the American church right now is, is struggling in a lot of ways. And one of them is this way, that we're, we're more interested in building silos than we are the kingdom of God. We'd rather build our kingdom over here and then let the Baptist church build their kingdom over there and the Methodist church build their kingdom over there. And then all the non-denominational people, they'll build their kingdom over there and over here. And we're so divided. And the church is hemorrhaging in a lot of ways. But I do believe this. I believe that it is still God's plan uh, to renew the face of the earth. Listen to this in, in Isaiah 66, 2, 3, 4. It says, Has not my hand made all these things? And so they, became, they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I esteem. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a man. And whoever offers a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is one like one who presents pig's blood. And whoever burns memorial incense like one who worships an idol. 
They have chosen their own ways, and their souls delight in their abominations. So I also will choose harsh treatment for them, and will bring upon them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered, and when I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight, and chose what despised me. Listen to the difference in this. He says, this is the one I esteem, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Verses, for when I called, in verse 4, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. It's a huge difference. See, God is speaking to us, church, to begin to do the things that he will do. But the answer is, are we going to be humble and contrite? Do we revere the Lord in such a way that we tremble at his word, that we'll do whatever it is he tells us to do, that we will literally pray and obey what God leads us to do? Or are we going to be the people who doesn't answer? It just goes on about doing our own thing because he calls us to be people who will listen. The one thing I see in the church that is killing us, is killing us, is that we'd rather make excuses than do what God's called us to do. Will we not? We'd rather rationalize away. And in fact, when I see people come into my office with struggles, the, one who are going, the ones who are going to make it are the ones who own it. That I did this, I made a mistake. I'm going to do my part to get better. But the ones who never recover, who never get better, are the ones who will constantly make excuses. Benjamin Franklin said that a man who is good at making excuses is seldom good at anything else. Have you ever seen people like that? Rather than just working and doing their part, they would rather make an excuse. They work harder not to work than they do to do their work. Like If you just do the work, it'd be a whole lot easier. But we're like that as Christians. We would rather make excuses. And it starts at a very, very early age. We were at the football camp this week. And and it was awesome. We we were playing. And and I had a little team. I was quarterback four. And then um, Dylan Turner had a little team. He was a quarterback four. And right at the end of the game, there was this little kid. We had to recruit a couple of the smaller kids to play with the big boys because a couple of the big boys had to leave. And so we had a couple of little kids. And one of them who is um, my wife's cousin's son. And like only in the South do you make that connection. But it's, it was my wife's cousin's son. And so we're there and he goes out for a pass. I've been throwing him some little short passes. He was catching them. He goes out maybe 20 yards and he's in the end zone. And I'm like, yep, he's open. I'm going to give him another shot at this, a good shot, a long pass. And so I just kind of lob it up. And it's like, it's spiraling, it's going through the air, everything's good, his hands go up, I'm like, he's going to catch it, he's going to catch it, and then he just forgot to put his hands together, and it's like, wham, hit him right in the eye. And I mean, it was one of those things where it it was a wet ball, it was kind of heavy, and I mean, when it hit him, I was like, my gosh, we're going to have to pick his head up, because I mean, it hit him so hard. And so, I went running over there to see about him, and he's like, ah, my eye. He's squalling, and he looks at me, and he goes, why'd you throw it so hard? I was like, why didn't you get your hands in front of it? Don't blame me. It was your fault. And so, he, I mean, but making excuses, right? And so he's making excuses about why he didn't catch the ball. And, and we listened to the kids throughout the entire week. Every time they would drop a ball, there would be an excuse. It was. It was always somebody else's fault. You threw a curveball. I'm like, it's a football. How do you throw a curveball with a football? Always somebody else's fault. 
But we do that the same way as, as Christians. We make excuses for why things aren't our fault. We make excuses for why we don't do what we all know we all already ought to do. And so one of the things I want to do today is I want to give you real quick, and, and we're going to get done with this very quickly, but I want to give you the 10 most common excuses that I hear in the body of Christ for not doing what we are called to do. Now, you got to think about it. This is the way I'm going to give them to you. I'm going to tell you the excuse that, that I hear, and then I'm going to tell you what people are actually saying, okay? For example, if you're dating a girl, right, and you go up to her, and you have become very fond of this young lady, and you walk up, and you say, let's just say Denise, okay? Is that good? Let's just say Denise. Denise, I love you. And she goes, thank you. Now, what she's saying is not that I really appreciate you telling me that. What she's actually saying is, I don't feel the same way about you that you do me. Is that not right? And if that's ever happened to you, I'm sorry. I would not admit it. Do not raise your hand. But, but thank you. It does not mean the same thing. And so this is what we're going to do. I'm going to read through some of these, and I'm going to tell you the translation of these excuses that we like to use. Number one, that's not my gifting. You ever heard that in the body of Christ? That's not my gifting. I do it, but that's not my gifting. Let me tell you what this actually says. And listen, we all fall into these. So if this one offends you, the next one will offend the person next to you. So just don't worry about it. That's not my gifting. I'm lazy and would rather someone else do it. Is that not true? I am lazy and I would rather somebody else do it. Can you imagine? Think with me for just a moment. We've got a gentleman. He just got back from Afghanistan. We should give him a hand for his service. Craig, uh, Andy, and Dana's son just got back from Afghanistan. So in honor of Craig, let's use a military example. Can you imagine if this was the case in the military? If, if the sergeant comes over to the troops and he's like, all right, guys, get around. This is the plan. You see the bunker over there. We got to take that bunker. If we don't take that bunker, bad things are going to happen. We got to take the bunker. And then if they went, um, sorry, sorry, but, uh, I'm, I'm good at taking hills, but um, bunkers, just that's not my thing, Sergeant. I, I, I think we should probably get somebody else because my gifting is not to take bunkers. I, I do a better job at taking hills. Would that work? No. And do you think when they are in their, their basic training, when they're in boot camp, that they're going, now listen, if there's ever a situation that you come across that's not your gifting, don't worry. There'll be somebody else to do it. No. Why don't they do that? Because the consequences are too high. In war, you do everything perfect and people die. How much more when people don't do their job? But how is it any difference in, in the body of Christ? So we're dealing with eternal things. If we're not doing our part as the body, people suffer eternally. So the excuse of that's not my gifting is lame. And we need to begin to do the things that God's called us to do. I just told you all kinds of scripture that tell you that you have a gift. And you do. And God has gifted you in certain areas. But let me tell you the greatest gift you could possibly receive is the gift of Jesus Christ. And if you have received him, then you hold in your heart, you hold within you the greatest gift you could ever give anyone. And we need to start being more liberal with that gift. more Giving it more liberally. Number two. Second most common excuse, I'm burned out. 
That equals my passion and desire for God have been quenched because I've been in church all my life and have given everything I have towards buildings and programs. See, listen, God never called us to invest everything into a program. He called us to invest everything into people. That's why so many of us are tired of doing church work is because we've spent our wheels. We've spun our wheels for years and years and years and have seen very little fruit. And one of the reasons for that is because we're investing in the wrong thing. You remember when the Iraq War, uh, the first one, the Persian Gulf War, was going on back in the early 90s? And, and they had, some of you don't because you were like two. But, but for those of us who were older, you remember when they would shoot the Scud missiles and they would like be aiming at Kuwait and it would land in like Saudi Arabia? You remember that? It was just ineffective. You know, they never knew. It was like, well, maybe it'll end up in the right spot. They had no clue. They were just going all over the place. And so many of us as Christians, that's how our lives have been lived, is we've been trying to do this. We've been trying to be effective. We've been trying to make an impact, but we've been going in the wrong direction. See, God has called us to make an impact in the people around us. Let me tell you, your two best harvest fields, the places that God has planted you to make the biggest difference, it's not within the four walls of this church. It's in your family and your workplace. First, your family. Man, my greatest priority I got to get my kids saved. And sometimes I have to check myself on that priority. Is this really what I'm about? Is it about getting my kids into the kingdom of God? Or have I made it about something else? And so we got to realize the people you work around, that those are the people that, that we need to begin to get to, know the, the, to get to bring into the kingdom of God. I'm going to have to move a little quicker. Number four, or number three, I'm not an evangelist. I'll just move a little quicker. I'll just skip one. Um, number three, I'm not an evangelist. That equals sharing the gospel really isn't that important to me. Listen, so many people say that. It's just not my thing. <laughs> yeah, that one. Um, skip two. So that here's the deal, though. So many of us say that we're, we're not, I'm not an evangelist. That's just not my thing. But here's my question. What book are you reading? Because everything I read in the New Testament, everything I read in the Scripture is that God created us to be a people that tells of all that He's done. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says that we're to declare the praises of Him. Declare the praises of God. That is what we were created to do. And listen, you don't have to have a PhD in theology to be an evangelist. All you got to be able to do is say, hey, I go to a cool church. Why don't you come with me? It's not that hard. But it could change somebody's life forever, eternally. Change their life. This is what God's called. So I'm going to jump back up to number three now, since I skipped over two. Number three, I'm, I'm not equipped to do that ministry. Equals I'm afraid I'll fail, and I'm doubting the competency of Jesus in my life. You know, one of the things I thought about in this is when Nehemiah was building that wall, can you imagine the doubts that they were having? When they were trying to build this thing and it was about knee-high, can you imagine the doubts? Can we actually finish this thing? But then, you know, when it started getting about waist-high, can you imagine how, how they must have started feeling? And then certainly by the time it was head-high, they had to start seeing, man, we can actually do this. This could happen. We can do this. But he couldn't have done it alone. If you read Nehemiah chapter 3, there were perfume makers building the wall. There were rulers of districts building the wall. Everybody came together to build the wall. But we're always worrying about, am I competent enough? How about if we had the same tenacity, the same determination about the kingdom of God that we have about our job? Or we have about our, our, our deer hunting? Or we had about our golf ball? Can you imagine that? 
we were playing golf at the beach and I can say this because I played worse than anybody else down there. So if I yank on somebody else's game, it's because mine was worse. Um, but my brother, we got to the 18th hole. And this is no joke. My father-in-law actually said, God, just get us through this hole. That's how bad it was. I mean, we were, set, we were just like, please get us out of here. And, and I was, even I was like, can we just skip it? You know? And, and so my brother-in-law gets up to hit the ball. Not Chad, my, my other brother-in-law. He, he gets up. I'm trying to spare you the humiliation. And... He gets up to hit it, and it's been a long day, and it's been hot, and we've just, we're frustrated. We've lost about 50 golf balls, and, and he gets up to hit it, and like the ball's right here. He hit like right here, <laughs> and uh, it keeps going, and so it hit like right here. The club, and a big chunk of dirt is flying, and then he gets back up over the ball, and he comes in, and he swings again, hit the same exact place <laughs> for the second time. And then he gets up again, and he does it the third time. And by this time, he's just swinging, man, like a madman. And dirt's flying, and finally a piece of dirt hits the ball, knocks the ball off the tee. He just bent down, never looked at the water behind him, and just threw it in the pond and went and sat down in the golf cart. And so I'm like, man, I felt bad for him because I've been there, you know, I've been there. And so we go up to the green, and he kind of just sat in the cart because I knew he was frustrated. And so I walked up, and I was like, man, you believe we pay money for this kind of punishment? And he was like, I know, man, you could have just kicked me in the teeth and it would have felt better than that, you know? But can you imagine if we, if we were that upset because of, of, of our failure in the kingdom of God? But we don't go after it with the same tenacity. We worry, and this is all of us. There are things in our life that we worry about so much more than just what we're doing for the kingdom. Number four, that's not my calling or my heart. That equals I'm selfish and really want to do what I want and not what Jesus needs. See, it's not our calling because our hearts are far from God. Um, Friday, we were here at the church and, and Susan was over there getting children's stuff ready. And I was like, great. I was like, I'm going to go run. I need some relief. And, and she was like, well, we'll we're, we're supposed to be somewhere at like 6. And I was like, okay, I'll see you at 6. Well, I started asking her the stuff she had to do. There's no way she's getting there by 6. And so I'm like, all right, um, well, how are we going to do this? Can we do this later? Can we do? Because why? I wanted to go run. Right? I wanted to go run. And so I'm like, can we do this later? And she's like, well, I got to get this done. And I'm like, but, but, but I'm going to run. Now, how are you going to be there at six? Well, well, and she goes, well, could you just stay and help me? And then we could both go. I'm like, no, that's ludicrous. Why would I do that? And she's like, well, then I don't know what we're going to do. I got to get this stuff done. And so, you know what? I ended up staying and helping her. But it was so much against what I wanted. My flesh man was saying, this is not what I want to do right now. But so many times in, in the kingdom and when we're doing things for God, we, don't, we can't always do what we want. One of the things that's missing in the American church is this realization that we serve Jesus. He doesn't serve us. Amen. And we need to begin to get back to that. Number six, I would be in church more, but. I would be in church more, but. You fill in the blank. <clears throat> that equals my priorities are jacked up and I'm not trying to do anything about it. <laughs> I mean, seriously, my priorities are messed up and I don't care. Because whatever it is that's taking the place of that, listen, you can't be a Christian and not be a part of the body of Christ. You can't. You can't function as a Christian, I should say. You might have some fire insurance, but that's all you got. 
Because if you're not a part of the body, if you're not connected through a small group, if you're not doing what Jesus called us to do by gathering together, it's going to be mighty hard for you to fulfill all that God's created you to fulfill because we're not meant to do it alone. I was kidding with John the other day and kidding and somewhat serious. I said, I got an idea. He said, what? He, every time I say I got an idea, he's like, oh, great. What is it? Um, but I said, listen, man, how about we do one series next year? One, one message series. And he's like, um, okay. And I was like, what we'll do is it'll have 12 parts and I'll preach the same message for an entire month. Then we'll go to the next one. That way, everybody in the church would get to hear it. Right? Because statistically, most people go to church one out of about four Sundays. But we can't expect to be effective in the kingdom when we're not a part of the body. And I say that with all, all with joking, but also serious, you know? If we can't begin to get together and worship and be encouraged and draw strength through each other, then we'll never be able to do all that God's called us to do. Number seven, I don't have time to minister God's love to others. Equals my life is out of control and the one guiding it is not God. If you don't have time to invest in other people, then we need to reevaluate where our time's being spent. We need to begin to look at it and see what is it that's hindering me from following God and doing the things that he's called us to do. Number eight, this is my favorite, and this really steps on my own toes. I would read the Bible more, but I don't understand it. Equals it's too easy to cut on the TV, eat Doritos, and soak in my entitlement to easy entertainment. Right? I mean, that's all over my toes. I'll sit there and look at the Bible on the coffee table and be like, man, the Braves game is really good tonight. <laughs> Bible Braves, Bible Braves, Bible Braves. Go back and forth. But we've got to realize that we need to be in the Word of God. If we're going to know who we are as the body of Christ, if we're going to know who we are as individuals, we need to be in the Word of God. People say, I don't understand the Bible. The problem is not that we can't understand the Bible. The problem is we don't understand who we are because we don't read the Bible. So much so that we're about to spend four weeks on a new series called Identity because the biggest problem I see in the church today is we don't know who we are. We don't have a clue who we are as, as the children of God and as the church. And so we're going to begin to look at that. Number eight, or number nine, I'm not comfortable in small groups. Equals my spiritual growth is not important enough to cause me to push past the awkwardness of meeting new people and commit the time it takes to grow spiritually. When I first started living for God, I met with uh, my brother-in-law every Monday night for two or three hours. We did this for three years. We missed like two meetings. You know why we did that is because I knew if I didn't do it, I'd never make it. We can't make it alone, but we can have a huge impact when we begin to unite together. Number 10, I just keep missing the mark that God's drawn for me, or otherwise sinning. But God knows my heart, and Jesus gives me his grace to cover my sin. Equals, I'm using grace as a crutch and rationalization to do what I want because I really don't want to live for God. It's really the truth. Now, there's a theological truth that we all keep saying. We all sin. We fall short of the glory of God, and it is the blood of Jesus that makes us righteous. But it becomes a problem when we begin to use that as a crutch just to do whatever we want to do. Well, I can't be perfect, so I'm just going to do whatever it is I want to do anyway because, hey, Jesus loves me. Right? And so we got to get past that. We need to begin to live for God. We need to begin to live as though he really died on a cross for us and shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. Right? Now, the last thing I want to tell you today is this. The last one, number four, and the four things that we have to realize. We need to realize that the only thing hindering God's kingdom growth is us. You know, in Matthew 9, 35 through 38, um, Jesus comes and he, he tells 
his disciples. Look at these people. They're hurting. They're lost. They're, uh, it's, it's a multitude of people. He says, the harvest is plentiful. He said, pray that the God of the harvest would send laborers into the fields to begin to bring in the harvest, to begin to bring these people in. Pray that he would. Isn't it funny that Jesus didn't say, pray for those people who are, who are, who are lost, who are hurting? He said, pray that God would send people in to go and begin to bring in the harvest. Now, is he saying we shouldn't pray for them? No, we should. But he's saying this is important. You've got to go and begin to bring the harvest in. He's called the body of Christ to begin to be the body and bring in the harvest. Bring in the people that need to know him. He told uh, the disciples in Matthew 16, 13 through 18, he said, listen, I'm going to build my church upon you. And he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When we really begin to do what the body is supposed to do, when we begin to step into the things that God's called us to, to begin to evangelize, to begin to share the love of Jesus in small ways, in any way we possibly can, the Bible says that the gates of hell, hell itself, the power of death cannot prevail against us. That's good news. That's awesome news. And so here's the deal. We've got to come to a place where we make a decision today as to whether or not we're going to be a part of the body. Listen to this last scripture I'm going to read. Nehemiah 4, 12 through 20. I'm only going to read 19 through 20. It says, Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is extensive and spread out. This is when they're looking at all they had to do. The work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. This is my prayer for us this morning, that we would hear the trumpet sounding, that we would know that God right now is blowing a horn. He is trying to rally the troops to come and begin to fight the battle. And it says that God will fight for us. Listen, this this community can be radically changed. This community can be radically changed. But it's going to be when we own our responsibility as the body of Christ. It's going to be when we begin to do the things that God has called us to do. And now in the next five minutes or so, we're going to take Holy Communion together. And we saved it to the end. Normally do it, we do it right in the middle. But we saved it until the end because this is one of the greatest ways that we remember the putting together of the body. It's when we come and as many as we are, we take of one loaf, symbolizing the fact that we are here under the headship of Jesus and one body. When you come and you take communion today, I don't want you to take it like maybe you come and you just take it and it's done and it's over. I want you to think one about what Jesus did on the cross for you. But I also want you to think two of the fact that you are a part of something much bigger than yourself. And God desires to use you in incredible ways. Listen, God is going to unite us. There are some things coming down the pipe. We'll be talking about more um, in the weeks to come that I am so excited about the potential of what God can do through these things, through, through um, some stuff coming up in August. And you'll be hearing more about those things. But I want you to realize today that you're part of something bigger and we're going to take part in communion here in just a moment. Um, one of the things that uh, we look at when we take communion is the fact that, that Jesus said to remember him as we take it. When we come, we're going to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, that the bread represents the body that was bruised and beaten and that the blood represents 
the, the blood of Christ, the juice represents the blood of Jesus that was poured out for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be washed and made clean. This is something for us to do as believers in Jesus Christ, that we come and we share in this, and we share in the responsibility that he's passed on to us to do things for his kingdom, to share the love of Christ, to begin to heal the brokenhearted and meet the needs of those that are around us and showing the love of Jesus. Now, the Bible says that on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread. He broke the bread. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which was given for you. The Bible also says that he took the cup and he blessed it. He gave it to the disciples. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. See, listen, when we come to the communion table, we have the opportunity to celebrate the forgiveness of Jesus. And we all need forgiveness. And when you take it, don't take it lightly. I'm going to pray, and as we pray, I'm going to ask you to examine your heart. And whatever it is that's hindering you from being fully um, devoted to serving Christ, taking up your cross and following him, I'm going to ask you that today you consider what your response to his invitation to be a part of his mission would be. Let's pray.